0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. We have a desire for five elders and five deacons to be in place within our church within the next five years. Uh, The intent being to send some of that leadership out to plant more churches. We've been in recent discussion about starting a local ministry here in Sonoy to reach the people uh, of this community, specifically those that are less fortunate. And so Um, As we come to the end of our study on prayer and we have our C group discussion on a Sunday morning, we're going to focus our attention on uh, brainstorming and and developing ideas for what we can do based on the giftedness that God has given us to reach people in this area. And then goals number four and five, to plant another church in this area and then to plant a church overseas. We want to be in the, uh, not just the beginning stages, but well into the planning stages for planting those churches. Uh, And so lead pastors have to be raised up from within our church uh, with the intent to plant in the surrounding area, noon in Peachtree City, Fayetteville, somewhere in that area. Uh, And we want to send people from that 150 to go and be a part of that church plant. Um, And then we want to send six to eight people from our church overseas to plant a church. Different culture, different community. In order for that to happen, we've talked about the word becoming a priority in our church, people becoming a passion in our church. And we've talked about how Satan will seek to hinder this movement. God uh, has has called us to this and Satan will seek to destroy that calling in our life. Um, And so he will seek to hinder us much in the same way that he sought to hinder Paul and his advancement. Paul highlights that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, how Satan was seeking to hinder the advancement of of the gospel. And so we started talking last week specifically about how we have to pray. If this is going to happen, if sovereign hope is going to grow, if leadership is going to be raised up, if people are going to, in their hearts, be detached from this setting and willing to go to another setting, we're going to have to pray for this, that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And so prayer has to be a necessary component if we're going to accomplish this for God's glory. And so we talked last week that prayer is our means for asking God specifically for the good that he desires to give us. It's not a means for us to inform God of what's going on in our life. And so um, it's an opportunity for us to ask God for the good that he's promised us. We talked last week that God has obligated himself to be good to his children, he's obligated himself to meet the needs of his children. And so. When we pray and we don't see our prayers answered in the way that we want them to be answered, we can trust that it's either not good for us or it's not a need of ours, because God has promised in his word that he will meet the needs of his children, that he will do good to his children. Prayer is also seen in scripture as a means to make things happen, and we're going to look more at that. Prayers that changed history in the course of God's word, prayers that um, that inaugurated God's plan that he already had in place, already intended to do, but he uses the avenue of prayer to bring those plans to this earth. Prayer is not a means for us to get anything we want, but as Ephesians 3 tells us, it is a means for us to get more than we think we can get. Because the promise is given to us in Ephesians that God is capable of doing far more than anything we ask or think. And so as we pray for these goals, we pray for these things in our limited, finite understanding of what we believe God wants for our church. We recognize that God is fully capable of doing far more than we could ask or think in regards to what we want for our church. Um, and, And so we talked about just the wow prayers that so oftentimes don't get incorporated into our prayer life. Um, that, that I, you know, I confessed to you last week, I'm so guilty of praying things that don't drive me to be thankful when they take place in my life. You know, just praying that God will give me strength to get through the day. That at the end of the day, I'm not driven back to praying and thanking God for that. That a lot of times my prayers are very vague, they're not very specific, that I'm not compelled to thank God when I see those specific answers. We want to challenge you as a church, and I believe these goals that we're, we're moving towards as a church are, are big goals that are going to drive us to be thankful when God starts moving in our church in these areas, that it's going to be obvious that the only way these things are accomplished is through God moving in our midst. So I gave you six prayer requests last week, six ways that we need to be praying if we're going to accomplish what God has set before us. Number one, that, that our people in our church would read the Bible. Uh, that we would become students of the Word, that we have to be unified around Scripture, that we have to be growing, maturing in God's Word, so that when God brings us new converts, that we can disciple them faithfully, so that we're not wrestling with our sin and wrestling with our understanding of God, that we can uh, teach these others what Jesus has commanded for them. Secondly, that our people would fight sin, that we would read the Bible, that we would fight sin, That we would yield to righteousness rather than yielding our flesh to the sin that tempts us. That Number three, we would faithfully teach Jesus. We said that that was the component that angered the Pharisees so much in the book of Acts. Yes, we see the church growing because of miracles. Yes, we see the church growing because people shared their things, because they cared for each other. But the thing that they were told to stop doing was teaching Jesus. Not stop sharing your things, not stop doing miracles, not stop meeting together. It was stop teaching Jesus. So if we're going to grow our church the way that the book of Acts portrays church growth, we're going to have to faithfully teach Jesus as church members. We're going to have to care for others faithfully. Number four, we're going to have to make money. And I told you, we are praying specifically that you will make more and more and more and more money at your jobs so that that money can be given here for the purpose of sending six to eight people overseas. That the biggest hindrance to people not going to the mission field is finances and then medical fears we talked about last week. And we want to eliminate those as best we can. And so we are praying that people in our church will be blessed financially so that when it comes time to send people to plant a church overseas, they are fully funded through this church. They don't have to go raise support from families and friends and other churches. That we've worked hard. As the book of Ephesians talks about, that you work hard in such a way that you take care of your own needs, but you also have enough to share with others. That we're able to send people fully funded through Sovereign Hope. And then I'm also praying specifically, I don't think it's an accident that God has blessed our church, as small as we are, with the great number of people that have medical knowledge. Nurses, EMTs that are a part of our church that could be sent overseas to help alleviate the, the, the medical and health concerns that so oftentimes accompany a young couple who goes overseas, know they want to have kids, but just the uncertainty of what does that look like to have kids in a foreign country? To be able to send people from our church that have that type of medical knowledge to offer that assurance, to offer that comfort in the midst of that. And then lastly, praying that there will be people in our church that have a desire to step up and lead as elders and deacons, so that they can be sent out for God's work. This week we talk specifically about praying to the unchanging. We pray to a God who's very clear in Scripture that His plans don't change and He doesn't change. So how do we pray effectively? How do we pray confidently? How do we motivate ourselves to pray to a God that has already communicated in His Word, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I don't change. My plans don't change. They've been set in stone since before the beginning of time. How do we pray and ask for things? How do we pray and ask God to change things when he's communicated that his plan doesn't change? We can take comfort in that truth that we pray to a God that doesn't change this morning. We serve a God that knows more than we do and he knows better than we do. To to even entertain the idea that God could change Necessarily implies that he doesn't know the future. For him to change his plans means that he alters his plans because he realizes it would be better to do things this way. And it necessarily implies that he did not know the future for him to then change what he intended to do. Because God does not change, we pray for his plans and not our plans. God's plan is in place and it's for the maximum glory and for the maximum good of his children. As we pray, we expect God to answer with good. Psalm 103 tells us that God satisfies us with good. So we pray to a God that doesn't change, and that's a positive thing, that's a good thing. But we also find from Scripture that we ought to be praying to this God because we lack things in our life due to our failure to pray. In James 4.1, it says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Jesus faithfully taught his disciples to ask their father for things, which implies that yes, God promises us good, but that if we fail to ask, there is good that has not yet come to us because of our failure to ask. And so we are driven to a God that doesn't change because he's commanded us to come for that avenue of receiving the good that he's promised to us. So we pray for these goals for our church. I believe God has plans for our church that he's always intended to accomplish, but I believe he wants to accomplish those now as a response to our prayers. That he always intended to raise up leadership in our church, but he's going to do so in response to our praying for it. He always intended to send people overseas to plant a church. He's going to do that through our church now because we pray for it. We pray for these goals. We lack what is necessary. We lack the finances. We lack the leadership because we haven't faithfully asked for it yet. And we're now moving in the direction where we're appealing to you, petitioning you to pray to pray for these things, trusting that God will give these things to our church so that we can expand his kingdom. My challenge to you as we look at this this morning is, are we praying expectantly? Are we praying expecting these things to happen? And I was encouraged yesterday, Um, my sister was telling me that she was interacting with uh, some people at the um, the Crisis Pregnancy Center, and, and she's, she's faithful to tell people about our church, but doesn't always get a positive response about somebody saying, hey, yeah, I might visit. But then this week uh, experiences a, a conversation where there really may be somebody that comes through that invitation. I got a call last night, late last night, uh, from somebody that said, hey, are y'all still meeting uh, where your website says? And so I explained to him exactly where we were, and he said, I've got uh, a family that I'm trying to... Um, encouraged to come to your church, and so I just wanted to make sure that I had the details correctly. We pray for this. We expect for it to happen, and we should praise God as we start to see these type of things happening. We pray expectantly that God is going to move as we are asking him to. The main point this morning in your notes, and if you don't get anything else, then I really want you to get this. We pray to a God that doesn't change, so how can we pray for things to change? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, this is such a cool passage in regards to prayer and and why we pray and just having a proper perspective on prayer from a a sovereign perspective when we trust that God's in control, that he's going to do things, that he doesn't need us, he doesn't need us to pray for things. But getting a, a correct perspective on why we still pray to a sovereign God. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You see that encouragement there about the resurrection? He says, we are trying to plant churches. We are trying to advance the gospel. We're experiencing opposition to the point that we fear for our lives, but it, it encourages us and it reminds us that we serve a God who raises people from the dead. We've talked before. The radical change that happens in the disciples' lives happens after the resurrection. They were following Jesus before the resurrection, but they're denying Jesus. They're, they're hesitant in their following of Jesus. That They're clumsy in their faith. After the resurrection, we see the disciples take off. They're bold proclaimers. They don't fear death any longer. They're they're standing in in public places knowing that people are being killed for doing this and they don't seem to back down because they know that God raises people from the dead. They saw the resurrected Jesus. Paul says, we're fearing for our life, but then we're reminded that we don't rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And then verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Paul is just just communicating such confidence here. He says, we fully believe that God delivered us. It wasn't by chance that we were delivered. We believe that God is delivering us now, and we have a real confident hope that he's not done with us here on this earth. Remember Paul talks in Philippians, I want to die and be with Christ, but I want to stay here. And then he comes back to the idea, I'm probably staying here. I don't feel like God's done with me yet. And that's what he's communicating here. He says, I have full confidence God's going to keep delivering us from these situations. But then look what he says in verse 11. You also must help us by prayer. I mean, he's already confidently said, I think this is what God's going to do. I think he's going to deliver us. I'm confident he's going to deliver us you pray that God delivers us? And you should read that and say, well, why? I mean, you seem so confident. What would be the purpose in me praying for this if you're so confident that it is going to happen? Look what he says. So that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Main point that I want you to write down. We do not pray to change God's plan. We do not pray to change God's plan. Paul says, this is going to happen. We're going to be delivered from this. He's not praying that God's plan would change. He's not asking them to pray that God's plan would change. We do not pray to change God's plan. Rather, we pray to increase our obligation We pray to increase our obligation to glory in him when he fulfills his plan. We do not pray to change God's plan. Rather, we pray to increase our obligation to glory in him when he fulfills his plan. Do you see what's going on there? Paul says, we're going to be delivered. I want you to pray for it so that when it does happen, it's not just me and my companions that are thanking God for it. He says, we're already praying for it. Like We realize we are in the heat of battle. We are praying for God's deliverance. We believe he's going to answer it. And if he answers it just because we pray about it, we will give him thanks and he will get what he deserves. But Paul says, I'd rather more of you participate in it. I'd rather everybody be praying for my deliverance so that when it does happen, everybody is praying and giving thanks to God. See, we could say, hey, as elders, we're going to commit to praying for these goals to happen. You guys just sit back and we'll let you know when things start happening and we'll start including you when these things start happening. But God doesn't give the maximum amount of thanks if there's only a handful of us praying about it. So we bring this to you, and we bring the request to you, and we appeal to you to pray for these things. We're posting prayer requests on the city that you guys are sharing, not so that just one or two can pray, so that as a group we can pray, so that when God answers these, prayer, these prayers, more of us are giving thanks to God. We don't pray to change God's plan. We pray so that we obligate ourselves to glory in him. God gets more glory. He gets more thanks when more people are praying for his plans to happen. That should be an encouragement to us this morning. This is an avenue that God uses to receive glory. See, a lot of us have good things that happen in our life that we don't even ask for. And we're we're less prone to thank God for those things because we haven't really directly asked for them. But the more we are challenged to directly ask God for things, to ask him to raise up leadership in this church. Imagine that the celebration, the next time we ordain elders, if we've been praying for three years for it to happen, and we know that that year five is is, is approaching, and we have an, an elder ordination time, And it's not just a time for me and the other elders to celebrate the investment that we've made teaching and raising up these individuals. You get to rejoice in it. You get to thank God for it because you've been actively praying that God would call individuals out from our church to lead, to shepherd, with the intent to send them somewhere else to do it. Paul says, this is going to happen. I want you to participate in it. I want you to pray for it so that you're compelled to thank God when it happens. Two points under that main point. Point number one, we pray to a God that is unchanging in himself. So God doesn't change. We pray to a God that is unchanging in himself, in his essence, his attributes, his promises, his purposes, and his plans. God tells us repeatedly in Scripture, he does not change. Can I get some volunteers to look up some verses and maybe we'll read them together as a group? Somebody want to look up Numbers 23, 19? All right, Anna. Somebody look up Psalm 33, 10, and 11? Sarah. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11? Jordan. Hebrews 1, 10 through 12? Dave. In his essence, attributes, promises, purposes, and plans, God does not change. Numbers 23, 19. All right, he doesn't change like man. Psalm 33, 10 through 11. All right, his counsel stands forever. His plans don't change. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. God says, when I when I decide to do something, I will do it. I don't change. His plans have always been in place. He will accomplish all of his purposes. Hebrews 1, 10 through 12. All right. In the midst of everything around us changing, culture changes, God remains the same. We still serve the same God that the Israelites served in the Old Testament. Nothing's changed about him. Nothing's changed about him. The same God that walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, same God we pray to today. The implication from this, God's holiness always leads him to hate and punish sin, and it always leads him to accept righteousness. This is the God that we serve. God's holiness always leads him to hate and punish sin. And it always leads him to accept righteousness. And that never changes. God always hates sin. He always punishes sin. And he always accepts righteousness. He doesn't deviate from that. That's his character. That's his essence. That's who he is. He responds positively to righteousness. He responds wrathfully towards sin and towards rebellion. So we pray to a God that's unchanging in himself. But point number two, we pray to a God that changes everything outside of himself. We pray to a God that's incapable of changing himself, but we pray to a God that changes everything outside of himself. He can change any circumstance. And he can change any individual so that his plans can be accomplished. So it should not hinder our prayers that we pray to a God that doesn't change. It should inspire our prayers because we pray to a God that is capable of changing everything else. Everything else he's able to to change. Two examples of this Exodus 32. Talking about God's wrath and God's response to righteousness. In Exodus 32, verse 7. Children of Israel waiting for Moses to come down from Mount Sinai. They build a golden calf. They're worshiping it rather than God who just saved them from the Egyptians. Verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. Moses, Moses says, or, or God tells to Moses, they're sinful. They're rebellious. They're going to be consumed in my wrath. I'm going to make a nation through you. It doesn't change God's plans because God promised to make a great nation out of Abraham. Moses is a descendant of Abraham. God can easily start over with Moses and not violate any part of the covenant. He says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, because of their sin, I cannot, I cannot tolerate their sin. So I'm going to punish them and start over with you. Moses says, Verse 11, he implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, that he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger, relent from this disaster against your people, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of, bringing on his people. So it looks like God has changed his mind. It looks like God has has altered what he intended to do, that he had a plan to make a nation out of Moses, and now he's altered that. But look at verse 15, then Moses turned and went down from the mountains with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf they had made, burned it with fire, ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the people of Israel drink it. Moses said to Aaron, Why did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil, for they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this, Moses, the man who brought uh, brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had left them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me all the sons of Levi gathered around him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your swords on your side, each of you. Go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. The sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. The only thing that changes in this story is the circumstances surrounding the people of Israel. God says, in their sin, I have to punish them. Moses appeals. He he acts as an advocate, much like Jesus does in the New Testament, in a far superior way. But Moses appeals to God and says, please don't do this. Please spare these people. And he doesn't say it because he has friends and family that make up the people of Israel. He says, I want your name to be great, and I don't want this to detract from your name in the eyes of your enemies. And he goes to the people of Israel, and there's repentance that happens. There's, there's the dealing with sin that happens. They kill and punish those that were primarily responsible for this. And then even Moses says, I don't know if, if God's going to relent from this. And he, has, he says, I'm have to go back and appeal to God, even though from the narrative account we know that God's already determined not to rid the world of the Israelites and start over with Moses. The intent was, if things don't change, I will take them out. But things changed; Their hearts changed. Repentance happened. It's the same that happened in the book of Jonah when we went through the book of Jonah. God says, I'm going to punish the Ninevites. I'm going to to wipe them out. Jonah brings that message. The Ninevites repent, and it says that God doesn't wipe them out. Not because God changed, but because the Ninevites changed. Who they were, what they were doing changed and it allowed God to, to not respond the way that he said he would have to if things didn't change. A God that desires to fellowship with a sinful people has to either change his holiness or change the sinful people. And what we see time and time again in, in, in the course of history is that God changes sinful people because his holiness cannot change. He changes them. He makes us holy because of what Christ has accomplished for us. He's given us that righteousness so that we can be in fellowship with him. God changes the people so that he can save them as he always intended to. God uses the threat of punishment to bring about change in people so that he can do what he always intended to do. Essentially, God says, my plan cannot change, but based on the circumstances, I cannot carry out my plan without conducting a change within them. So we do not pray to a God that changes his plan, but instead we pray to change the current situation to make God's plan happen. Prayer initiates the plan that God had all along. So My belief is is that God has things that he intends to do through our church. And he's always had these plans, but he will not accomplish these plans until things change in us. Until we become a passionate about His Word, become passionate about people, become willing to embrace the responsibility to lead for individuals in our church to embrace that responsibility to give up their sin, to become the type of people that, that Timothy uh, or Paul instructs Timothy, these are the qualifications of leaders in your church. Until those things change in our people, God's not going to accomplish the plans that He intends to. But I believe that through what we're learning together as a church, through the prayers of our people, God is going to change us. He is going to change our circumstances so that he can carry out the plans that he's always intended to carry out through us. So The prayer focus there in your notes, the prayers that we're praying right now as a church, the prayers are an expression of our desire to see God change us. Prayers are an expression of our desire to see God change us so we might accomplish his unchanging plans. We're praying that God would change us so that we can accomplish his unchanging plans. See, in our state right now, we can't, we can't plant another church, and we can't go plant a church overseas. I'm just being honest with you. Right now, we do not have six to eight people that we can send to plant a church. We do not have six to eight people that are mature enough spiritually that have embraced the responsibility to proclaim the gospel that I would feel any level of confidence to say, you six to eight, go plant a church. Now, there may be a stirring inside of you right now that says, hey, I would like to be a part of that. I've always wanted to, to be missional. I've always seen myself maybe living overseas. I'm just being honest with you as your shepherd, as one who loves you dearly, one who knows um. Hopefully, what's going on within the church, within the mature growth of our church, that we do not have six to eight people that we could confidently say, you're doing it here, you're faithful here, we have no hesitation in thinking that you'll do it there. So because of that, what we're saying is change has to happen in us if we're going to accomplish these goals. Change that we've got to pray for. That God would pierce our hearts, drive us to his word, drive us to serving people, drive us to teaching Jesus. Changes have to happen in our life. We have to grow up. We have to mature if we're going to accomplish these things. These are changes that God promises he can and will do in us. He's not changing, and his plans aren't changing, but he's not going to carry out his plans until he changes us, and we're praying for those changes. I want to instill more confidence in you that prayer really does change the course of history. It doesn't change God, but it changes history. The prayers of the Ninevites changed history, changed where it was going. If circumstances didn't change, they weren't going to exist anymore. If circumstances hadn't changed in the camp of Israel, God was going to wipe them out. Prayer changes the course of history without changing God. Let me give you ten examples of this. First, Moses prays for Israel to be saved. Number one, Moses prays for Israel to be saved. A very similar situation in Numbers 14. They're trying to go into the promised land. The spies come back. They convince the Israelites not to go in. And God, in his anger towards their rebellion, again tells Moses, I'm going to wipe them out. Moses again appeals, confesses for the children of Israel their sin. And God even responds and says, because of your word, Moses, because of what you have done and prayed, I'm going to spare them. Secondly, Hannah prays for a child. Hannah prays for a child. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 1 together. 1 Samuel chapter 1. verse 10. Now, if you go back and read verses 1 through 9, it is a sad story. You've got a man who's got two wives. One of them is, is fruitful in the area of childbearing, and one of them is not. And what's implied there throughout the, the, the nine verses is that the one that has kids makes life horrible for the one that doesn't. I mean, just drives her crazy over the fact that she's barren. And it, caused deep, it causes deep distress to Hannah Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. You find that in verse 19, They arose early in the morning, worshipped before the Lord, then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Now, what I find interesting in this passage is that Eli, Eli doesn't come up to her and tell her to be content with what God's given her or, or lack thereof. There's a place for that. And I believe overall we're to be content with what God gives us. We're to be content. We're to find our joy in Christ and what he's accomplished in us. But there is a deep longing in this woman for a child. And it's part of the creative order. And I believe she recognizes that that it's not functioning the way that it's supposed to. I I was created and given the task of bearing children. And I think we see that all the way in the book of Genesis where Adam is cursed because he's the provider and the land is cursed where he's supposed to provide for the family, and the woman is cursed in the area of childbirth. The two things that that seemingly separate them, that make them different, but make them complementary towards each other. And Hannah's saying it's not functioning right. I long for a child. These desires are natural and right, and she prays for it. And she's not wrong to pray for it. I don't believe she's wrong to, to experience this type of distress over it. It says the Lord remembers her and gives her the child. And not only that, going back to what we said in Ephesians, that he does far more than we ask or think, Hannah's just saying, look, let me contribute to this. Let me contribute to society. Let me produce something for my husband. I don't even have to hang on to him, right? Like I'll give him to you. Just let me know that at the end of the day, I've done as a woman what I feel like I'm supposed to be doing. And the Lord blesses her, but beyond what she even asks her think, look what it says in chapter 2, verse 20. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. He gives her five more kids, maybe to the point where Elkanah comes and says, quit praying for this, right? Like, we're good, cut off, you've functioned as a woman now, you have provided so many kids for me, we don't need any more. God does far more than she could ask or think. And it's okay to pray for these type of things, fight for contentment, be content with what God gives us. But we can pray for the things that are natural desires. I don't know of anybody in our church that's praying for this specifically, but I know there are singles in our church that ache for marriage. And it's a right desire, and I want you to know that in the midst of praying for our goals, I know that our goals will be far better accomplished as singles in our church that desire marriage have provisioned by God husbands and wives so that they can be sent out together to accomplish his purposes And it's okay to pray that, because I know in Romans 1, I got on to to our singles, and I said, don't don't be critical of those that uh, are sinning in the area of of sex. We talked about Romans 1. We talked about um, the homosexuality. And I challenged you as singles. I said, don't think that you're immune from this, because essentially it's discontentment with God's plan in that area. And you can be just as guilty by being discontent with the fact that God hasn't given you this gift yet. But now I want to pick you back up and say, pray for this. Pray for this. Model what Hannah prays. She's got desires there. And I believe that God calls people to singleness. I believe Paul communicates that, that there are are people that don't have this burning desire to be married. That they're, they're better suited to serve God, not married. And that's not to say that everybody in our church needs to be married, but I know there are individuals that ache to be married and ache to be moms. And they're waiting for God's provision for this. And I want you to know that in the midst of praying for these goals, that I've started praying that God will provide that. That he'll provide it, not so that you have a companion, but so that God receives glory. Because I believe that together, uh, the more people that are married in our church that desire that, that are sent out from our church, the more opportunities for him to receive that glory. So I want you to know that I'm praying for that for you. Because I know it's a desire for you in the same way it was a desire for Hannah. And because of this, I believe God answers these type of prayers. That he can and that he will answer these type of prayers. Number three, Elijah prays for fire. This is another example of of something that happens in direct response to people praying. In 1 Kings 18, we won't read the story, but we'll recount the story briefly. You've got Elijah and the prophets of Baal that are kind of warring it out for the allegiance of the Israelites, whose God is better and who can call down fire from heaven. And you have the, the, the prophets of Baal that are seeking to do this, and there's no response, no response. And Elijah takes the opportunity to, to mock their God and, and says that their God is lazy or that he's going to the bathroom. And, and what I find so startling is that you don't have the Baal prophets stand up and say wait a second our god doesn't go to the bathroom and our god doesn't sleep and he's not lazy instead they say maybe you're right and so they 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 amp it up they try to get his attention see their 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 view of god is so low that he that he is like a man and so they're like oh yeah maybe he is asleep maybe he is being lazy maybe he is going to the bathroom let's appeal to him in a in a more amped up type feeling start cutting themselves trying to get his attention Elijah calls down fire from heaven, but not so that he is known as a great fire prophet. It's for God's name in first in first Kings eighteen Let's see I think it's in verse thirty six at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, "O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel." Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, verse 39, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And I was challenged this week, and then studying this, it it affirmed where I was being challenged. In my accountability group this week, I was confessing that I really have to fight in my job as principal and my job as a football coach. Verbally, I will tell you, I want to, to do those jobs well so that more people will know about Jesus. I want to function so well as a principal that kids are drawn to our middle school, their parents want them in our middle school, So I work hard because I want to grow our middle school so that more people know about Jesus. I want to be successful as a football coach so that more people want to come to Trinity to hear about Jesus. But I have to fight to not want to be a good principal and a good coach so that I look good in the eyes of parents at Trinity. I have to guard myself that I don't work hard for my own glory. And I love what what Elijah says here. He says, I'm praying for this so that the people will know that you are the Lord. And I love the result of it, that they are crying out not about Elijah. They're not praising Elijah and his ability to be a prophet. They are praising God for what he's accomplished. And God responds to this prayer. Number four, Elijah prays for rain. Elijah prays for rain in 1 Kings 18 still, but at the very beginning, chapter 1, or verse 1 of 18. It says, After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. They've been in the midst of this big dry spell, this drought that God had given to Israel for punishment. God says, okay, it's time to stop. The drought's going to stop. Go see Ahab. I'm going to send rain. Tells Elijah up front that he's going to do this. Then look what happens. This is a good lesson in patience and and diligence in our prayers. In verse 41, Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat, and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. He said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare a chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. I love that God tells Elijah he's going to send rain, but Elijah still knows he has to pray and ask for it and has to pray seven times for it. Not just one time. He's not just going through the motions. And I think God wants to remind him, hey, buddy, don't get a big head that you're some great prophet that can pray one time and get me to do things. He says, seven times we have to go look for a cloud, knowing that God has already promised to send the rain. I think it's a good reminder to us that we're not going to pray this and not have one night of prayer about this and expect that we're going to have five elders and five deacons and people that are passionate about going overseas to plant churches. We're going to have to labor in prayer over this, like Paul says. We're going to have to labor in prayer that God will change us to accomplish these purposes. Number five, Nehemiah prays for a wall. He prays for a wall. In Nehemiah chapter one, we learn that he is greatly distressed over the condition of Jerusalem and the wall being broken down. And he appeals to God and the promises that he's made. He says in verse eight of chapter one, Remember the word that you commanded your servant, Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. The prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, the king. Elijah's praying promises from Scripture. That's why we've got to be driven to the Word if our prayers are going to be effective. Because we're praying the plans of God, we're praying the promises of God for Him to do what He's obligated to do. And Nehemiah reminds God of these promises and God fulfills these prayers of Nehemiah. He answers these prayers. Number six, Hezekiah prays for deliverance. Israel has all the odds stocked against him in Isaiah 36. They're about to be wiped out. Sennacherib is outside. He's, he's ready to beat down the doors. He, he mocks them and says, your God won't show up. Nobody else's gods have shown up when we came knocking at their door, and we've been mowing down cities, mowing down kingdoms, and we're here to do the same thing to you. Hezekiah appeals to God, and and a great deliverance happens in the life of the Israelites. Number seven, Daniel prays for safety. In Daniel chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar is frustrated about his dream, wants an answer, uh, but he, he realizes his wise men are not as wise as they claim to be, and so he won't even tell them the dream, says, you tell me the dream and you tell me what it means or I'm going to kill you. They obviously panic and say, we don't know. Um, And so they're ready to kill all the wise men. And Daniel begins to appeal as to why this is happening. And he begins to pray. He begins to pray that God would deliver them. And it's only after praying It says in verse um, 17, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. God always intended to tell him what the vision was and what it meant, but he only gives it to him after Daniel asks. Another reminder to us that prayer changes things. Not God and not his plan, but it actually brings God's plan into being that he always intended to do. Number eight, Jesus prays for Peter's faithfulness. Got to be encouraging to Peter that Jesus is praying for him. In Luke 22, he says, Satan has demanded you, Peter. He's demanded to sift you. Jesus is encouraging him. He says, even though you're going to deny me, I'm not going to let Satan have you. I'm not going to let him have you. I'm going to restore you, and I'm going to build the church upon you. I'm praying for that. I'm praying for your faithfulness. We know that prayer gets answered. We know that Peter denies, but we know that Jesus restores, and we know that he becomes the effective um, leader that helps get the churches started in the book of Acts. Then the last two that I want to close with, number nine, the church prays for Paul's safety. We've highlighted this when we were in the book of Romans, but I want to show you how it plays out in the book of Acts. In Romans 15, verse 30 and 31, Paul tells them all about what he wants to do, similar to what I'm telling you as a church we want to do. says we want to go plant churches, we want to go here, we want to go to Spain. tells them all about those plans and then says pray for these that they'll happen. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers. This is Romans 15, 30. Strive with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. So that's where he appeals to them to pray for them. Let's skip over to Acts 21. Paul says, pray for me that the people in Jerusalem will receive me and not kill me because they're antagonistic towards the gospel. Pray that they'll receive my message. In Acts 21 verse 17, when he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. That's a direct answer to prayer. The direct answer to prayer, he said, pray, and he specifically, pray they'll receive us gladly. And then we have the the exact same type of wordage going on here. When he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So there's still that, that lingering possibility that, that harm's going to come to Paul. In verse 31, As they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. That's not by accident. It's not by accident that this information comes to this man. Lost one, awesome please. 31. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. Paul's about to be killed here, and somehow information reaches these officials. They come and rescue him. Okay, So he was received gladly, but Paul also prayed for safety. He's about to get killed. He's probably thinking, are those guys praying or not praying? He gets pulled out of that situation. He's thrown into jail, which doesn't seem like a great place to be. And then in chapter 23, verse 16, Now the son of Paul's sister... So his nephew heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell them. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. Do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for their consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. He called two of the centurions and said, Get ready two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen, two hundred spearmen, to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor, and he wrote a letter to this effect. He goes on to describe Paul and the safety that he needs right now. So the soldiers, verse 31, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. On the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go with them. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he was asked what province he was from. When he had learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. He commanded him to be guarded. In Herod's Praetorium. Those are all answers to prayer. Paul says, Look, I've got plans. I need your prayers. And then we see these answers to prayer play out. Individuals that get information, that share information, people respond to the information. Paul, time after time after time, protected, just like he asked the church at Rome to pray for. Our prayers change things. Our prayers bring God's plan into being. God responds to those prayers. And then lastly, Revelation 8. I love this passage as much as the book of Revelations is, is, a, is a scary book because it, it, it's, it's hard to understand. I love what's clear in this chapter. And we could debate on when this chapter happens. Has it already happened? Is it happening in the future? Regardless of when it happens, what is clear is why it happens. Verse 1, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. God responds and begins to carry out this portion of revelation in response to the saints' prayers. God responds to our prayers. He brings his plan into history, into time, as a response to us praying for it. And I give you all these examples, these 10 prayers of people who prayed prayers that altered where they believed the, the history was going. Hannah didn't believe she was going to have a baby unless she started praying for it. Hezekiah didn't believe that Israel was going to be spared unless he prayed for it. Daniel felt like we're going to die with the wise men unless we pray, unless God does something here in response to our prayers. Paul says, if you guys don't pray for me, I can't possibly get to Spain with the gospel. I'll be killed when I get to Jerusalem. Pray they welcome me. We have no hope of growing our church to 150 people. We have no hope of raising up elders and deacons. We have no hope of starting a local ministry, planting a church here or planting a church overseas, unless God does something in us, changes us. And I believe the only way he's going to do that is in response to us praying for it, asking for it. Not to change his plans, but for him to change us so that he can carry out his plans. Two questions I want you to ask yourself as application for this morning. Are you praying prayers that will change history? Are you praying prayers that will change history? And are you ready to pray prayers for our church to change history? Look, I'm committed to praying for this. I'm committed to praying for this. And when it happens, I don't want to be the only one rejoicing about it. Going back to 2 Corinthians 1, I believe that God's going to use our church to expand his kingdom. And I told you I'm flexible enough that it may not look exactly like we've got on paper here, but we're going off of what we see in Scripture and saying these seem consistent and seem um, honoring to God for us to push for this and to, and, to, and to go in this direction. I'm flexible enough that if God says, nope, we're going to tweak that, we're going to do some things different than you're your planning. But I am, I, am, I am devoted to praying for this to happen. And I want to be able to rejoice with you when it happens. In the same way Paul says, he's going to deliver us. We know he's going to deliver us. Will you pray that he delivers us so that there's more people that can give thanks to him when he does? And talking about prayer, I want you praying that God would use our church in this way. To grow his kingdom. Not because I believe he needs your prayers. Because I want you to obligate yourself to glory in Him when it happens. So that when we have elder ordinations, when, when singles are, are uniting for marriage and we're at marriage ceremonies, that it really is a time to honor God because of the provision that He's made. It's not just two people that fell in love, it's God bringing two hearts together to storm the gates of hell as we rescue people for eternity that it becomes a time of celebration for us as a group as we see God respond and answer these prayers. Let's pray this morning. Father, God, I want you to drive us to praying to you. God, help us not to err on the side of believing that as a sovereign God, you've got everything under control, and and therefore it, it removes any responsibility we have to pray. God, help us to see that faithful men and women throughout the course of biblical history have devoted themselves to praying for your plans to happen. and God, we are thankful that your plans are better than ours, that your wisdom is infinitely greater than ours. And so, Father, we recognize that as we pray and don't see answers the way that we want to, that we, we can trust that you are good and that you meet our needs. And, and when you don't answer our prayers, it's, it's because it's not good and it's because it's not a need of ours. Father, you, we are praying that you would change us so that you can carry out your plans through our church. Father, I'm praying for an increased passion in our people to read the Bible, to study the Bible, to hear the Bible, and be doers of your word. God, I'm praying that we would be uh, faithful to grow so that we can grow others. God, I'm praying that we would be faithful to fight sin, that our accountability groups would accomplish what they're meant to accomplish that we would not allow each other to grow hardened to the deceitfulness of sin, but that through the, the regular, steady encouragement, we would keep our eyes focused on Jesus. God, I'm praying that as we focus our hearts and our eyes on Jesus, that we would be bold proclaimers of Jesus to our friends, to our family, to our coworkers, to those that we enjoy hobbies with. God, help the enemy to be concerned with shutting us up because of proclaiming Jesus. Father, I pray that you would raise up leadership in our church, men to function as elders, men and women to serve as deacons here at Sovereign Hope, to be the pace setters. God, I pray that you would call out individuals that would be willing to go overseas to take Jesus to places that have never heard. God, I pray that you would increase our financial ability to support them. God, I pray that you would raise up individuals with the medical knowledge to go as a support system. Father, I pray for our singles in our church that you would provide helpmates for them. God, that you would satisfy those desires that they have that you would unite hearts. God, give them contentment as they wait. Give them the flexibility that this may not be your desire for them. God, help them not to be hamstrung into thinking they can't move forward with their life until this happens. But God, I pray in the midst of them moving forward that it would happen. That You would bring more and more couples to our church that could be effective in advancing your kingdom. In this church, in other churches, and our church plan overseas God I pray that we would be faithful as a group to pray for these things so that as you answer them, the one who deserves the glory and the honor and the thanks is the one that gets it. God we don't want our elders to be proclaimed as excellent because they raised up individuals to serve in our church that they discipled them. We don't want individuals in our church to be gloried in because they were faithful witnesses that that grew our church through the proclamation of the gospel. We want you to receive the glory. So, Father, I know that the more we pray for it, the more we do it as a group, the more glory you're going to receive. And so, Father, we pray for the plans that you already have in place to be accomplished through us. Change us so they can be. Father, we pray that you would receive the glory. As they have. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.savhope.org. Again, that's www.savhope.org.